Well, hey there. Welcome back to Basecamp uh, and to our discussion in systematic theology, where we've been processing through the person and work of Jesus in our last few episodes. And more specifically, in the last episode, we began to talk about the work of Jesus, right? What Jesus has done and why it's so important for Christians to know and to have a solid grasp of these foundational truths we believe as Christians. And this is a really fitting time of the year to consider Jesus's work, right? As we just celebrated Good Friday and the cross of Jesus uh, last week, and, and all of this is, is on our hearts and, and in our Bible reading plans and in a very particular kind of way. And then this past Sunday, we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. It's upcoming Sunday. We're talking about the resurrection of Jesus uh, again and what that means for our future hope as Christians. And so it's a fitting time of year to discuss all of this. And in our last episode, we discussed the importance of the incarnation, the perfect life, and the substitutionary death of Jesus, and, and why this is really vital to us as Christians. And in this week's episode, what we're going to be looking at and studying is the necessity of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And truly, if he is not raised from the dead, then, as we will see in a few moments, we have no assurance of salvation, no hope in life to come, and no hope in this present life. And, and if he has not been raised bodily from the dead, then we are to be found to be misrepresenting God. So it's important that we get this right. No, we talked about this on Sunday, but, but it's very important that we get the details right, right? We are walking on holy ground in this discussion, and eternities are on the line, right? Yours and mine and those with whom we are sharing our lives and the gospel. And so I'm really excited to dive into our discussion today. So with no further ado, let's get to it. Now, as we are getting started in this episode, I don't want to rehash a whole lot of things that we said on Sunday. So if you are looking for a whole lot more information on the resurrection of Jesus and why it's important, uh, you can go check out our church uh, podcast uh, on uh, on this. But I, I do think that uh, <laughs> this, um, this episode uh, would be... Uh, would be helpful as uh, coming alongside of our discussion from this past Sunday on the resurrection of Jesus to highlight a couple of things. So we're, we're not going to hit as much as we did on Sunday. I mean, we had like an hour-long sermon on the resurrection of Jesus and what it does. But three things that I want to point out briefly, what Jesus's resurrection ensures for us. Firstly, and this is what we talked a lot about on Sunday, that Christ's resurrection ensures our justification. His resurrection ensures our justification. Romans 4.25, Paul says, Jesus was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We talked about this a lot on Sunday, but this is the whole reason why Jesus, God the Son, came, why he laid humanity alongside of divinity and stepped into time, right? To live this perfect life we ought to have lived, to die the death we deserve to die. And when he went to the cross as the perfect, spotless Lamb of God who knew no sin, right? Not even one. He did so to bear our shame, to face the penalty for our sins, to bear an eternity of the wrath that we deserve to pay upon his shoulders, right? He, he stood condemned in our place as our substitute, and then he, he rose from the dead, right? He, he paid our debt in full, and his resurrection proves, it ensures that we are now justified by grace and through faith. Uh, on Sunday, we also talked about 
a definition of the word justification, right? That it's the legal ramifications of our sin, uh, meaning that they've been absorbed by Jesus. That's just what it means that Jesus' resurrection, that he justified us, right? It's this legal courtroom vocabulary that we are declared just, declared innocent, right? But, but apart from the resurrection of Jesus, we would be unsure if this is true. We'd be unsure of it. So it's very important and so it kind of gives this final proof that Jesus had earned our justification when he rose from the dead. And then secondly, Christ's resurrection ensures our regeneration. In, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter says that we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so here Peter is explicitly connecting Jesus' resurrection with our regeneration, our new birth. Right, so, so when Jesus rose from the dead, he earned for us this new life like his. We'll talk about this a little bit more uh, on Sunday about resurrection and how our bodies are uh, and will have a future resurrection. Right After we die, we, we will then go into a bodiless state for a period of time. But then our, our souls will be reconnected with a brand new heavenly body as we read in, in 1 Corinthians 15. But until then, what life do we have? And this is what we have. We have this new birth, this new life that is available to us here and now in this life. We have eternal life that is available for us here, right now. And this is a guaranteed, his resurrection ensured our regeneration so that when Jesus rose from the dead, he earned for us new life. We don't receive all of that new resurrection life when we become Christians, right? But because our bodies still remain as they were, our bodies are still subject to weakness and aging and sickness and death. But in our spirits, we were made alive with new resurrection power. We are not who we once were. We experience eternal life here on this earth, and it lasts for eternity. It begins here and now. We we have this this beginning of our eternal lives that, that lasts into eternity future, right? We are made new creations. We've been born again by faith in the finished work of Jesus. Thus, it is through his resurrection that Christ earned for us the new kind of life that we receive when we're born again. Apart from Jesus raising from the dead, we would have no guarantee of a new life here and now. We'd have no guarantee that we can be born again. And so as he resurrected from the dead, he that resurrection is the the insurement uh, that, that we have this new life that he promised for us. Thirdly, Christ's resurrection ensures that we will receive resurrection bodies like his. Now, now we see that, of course, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12 to 18, uh, but also uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, and 2 Corinthians 4, 14. And the New Testament, uh, on several occasions, uh, connects Jesus' resurrection with our final bodily resurrection. So, for example, the verse I just mentioned a moment ago, 1 Corinthians 6, 14, Paul says, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Similarly, in 2 Corinthians 4, 14, he says, He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Then again, 1 Corinthians 15, which is the longest treatment of the connection between Christ's resurrection and our own, Paul says that Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, right? The term first fruits is an agricultural metaphor indicating that we will be like Christ, right? So just as he, the first fruits, would uh, be raised, so we too will be raised, 
right? So Christ's resurrection body shows what ours will be like when we are raised. There is coming a day. (laughs) This is really good news. There is coming a day where we will be healed and glorified and whole and uncorrupted and not susceptible to corruption. But it's not here in this life. It will be when Jesus' kingdom comes crashing down upon this earth when we have our new resurrected bodies. And that is our hope. This is what we long for as God's people. Now, we do want to recognize that if we die before Jesus comes to set up his kingdom here on the earth, that we will be in this disembodied state for a period of time, which is a uh, bizarre thought, I know. Uh, It's this weird, abnormal state. This is not God's uh, long-term plan for us, but for a, a period of time, we will be in a disembodied state until there is the resurrection of the dead. Right, so so we are assured in First Corinthians chapter fifteen that we will receive a resurrection body like Jesus's resurrection body, a new body that is fitted to live for eternity future. And Jesus's resurrection guarantees this for us, brother and sister, that we will have these new bodies that we will spend eternity within. And let me just say, there are many questions about what these bodies will be like, and we aren't told a whole lot, other than they will be imperishable, raised in glory and power. They will be a spiritual body, a heavenly body, but a body nonetheless. So our future state will be some sort of, uh, we know, we're guaranteed, an embodied state where we will spend eternity future living in the renewed earth. Also, uh, this is a great time to talk about a theology of human embodiment. Uh, Back in Genesis chapter 1, if you remember, we see that God creates man and women in his image, which means a lot of different things, as we've talked about over the last couple of months, as we've constantly gone back to Genesis chapter 1. But but nonetheless, he gave us a body, and so we are connected to our bodies. He is the one that gave us our bodies, and we are to steward our bodies. And so as we live our lives, therefore, we are to live under the laws of God and what he tells us we are to do with our bodies and what we're not to do with our bodies. And as we're talking about in our gender series, uh, in our culture currently, we are kind of thrown back into this weird weird Gnostic world. Uh, If you're new to the term Gnosticism, Gnosticism is the idea that your body, the things that are bodily, are all dirty and wrong and terrible. Uh, And the only good part is spiritual things. And so you should give your life to just spiritual enlightenment. But bodily things are kind of terrible, gross, or at least not really that important. Uh, And all that really matters is your spiritual life. And as Christians, we can get caught up into this world where we don't actually love and thank God for the bodies that he has given us to steward. That we don't see our bodies as a good and gracious and kind gift of God, but rather we might see ourselves at war with our bodies in various ways. Now, and there's a great book actually by Nancy Piercy called Love Thy Body, which if you've not read it, I would highly suggest it. Um, Greg Allison also has a book called Embodied, uh, which actually traces a really good theology of human embodiment. And both of those books talks about how our bodies are these good and gracious gifts of God that we are called to steward. And it's fascinating as we think about our bodies as humans and all the things that we are to do with our bodies. So, for example, we are uh, given a new life in Christ, which we talked about a moment ago. is this eternal life. It's this spiritual life. But our physical bodies still waste away. The older that we get and our physical bodies die. 
But as our physical bodies are going on uh, in our life, as long as we are living, we are called to do certain things with our bodies. So think about all the things that we are called to do to demonstrate our faith with our bodies. So for example, we are called to gather together bodily, physically with other Christians, to uh, come under the authority of God's word and to uh, sing to God. We are called to, to kneel, to pray, to lay hands on one another. Uh, we are called to remember Christ's uh, resur- death, uh, resurrection uh, by uh, communion, by celebrating, by, by partaking of the bread and the juice or the wine bodily, remembering what happened. We demonstrate our faith as well by baptism as we are baptized in the water and brought back out, this, this demonstration with our bodies of what we're called to do with our bodies. And, and on and on we could go with the things that God tells us to do with our bodies. But then at death, we have this weird disembodiment. But that's not God's plan for us, right? We're, we're not just disappearing into the grand ether of the universe. Rather, God's plans and purposes is that our bodies uh, would be resurrected and reunited with, with our souls so that we are now forever into eternity future an embodied people. And so for all of eternity, we will have bodies. Thus, what Jesus has come to uh, demonstrate is his resurrected body is the first fruits of what we will experience as his people with a new body one day in the kingdom to come. Now, again, if this is your first time thinking about a theology of human embodiment, those books would be great places to go. But it's really important for us to be thinking through these things as Christians because Jesus' resurrection is really important to ensure our justification, to ensure that we uh, can have this new life, that we can be born again. But it also ensures that we one day likewise will have a resurrection like his. Right? And, and typically, this might be where we would end the discussion of the work of Jesus. Right, Jesus rose from the dead, and that's great. No more, right? Jesus' work is over. But there is a crucial role that Jesus has even now that often goes undiscussed and yet is meant to bring us great comfort and hope and joy. And that's this. Right now, his constant work for us, his ongoing work, Jesus' ongoing work, even right now, is his constant intercession for us, thus guaranteeing our salvation to the end. Oh, and that is hugely important. I've got a couple of scripture verses if you want to look at this uh, in the show notes. Um, but but it's, it's really important for us, right? Part of Jesus' continual work as our high priest is that he stands as a constant reminder that our debt has been paid through his work and he continues to be our mediator between us and the Father, interceding for us. So we see that in Romans chapter 8, verse 34 and 35. This is what God's word says. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And the resounding answer, of course, is nothing. And no one can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all that is built around the very fact that Christ is interceding for us. And Christ's priestly intercession for us is not only continual, but it's also effective. Right? God the Father listens to God the Son. And the Father always answers the Son's requests, John eleven forty two, which means that Christ's intercessory prayers are always successful. 
right? As Jesus prayed for Peter, Luke uh, chapter 22, verses 31 to 32, he, he prays for all his people. He prays that the elect will continue in the faith and persevere until final salvation, and God answers his prayers. He is always successful. He always lives to make intercession for us, Hebrews 7, 25. Jesus is a perfect savior for his imperfect people. Let me say that again. Jesus is a perfect savior for his imperfect people. Uh, Robert Murray Machane, uh, an old pastor, dead a long time, once said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet, the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. And man, that's good. That should be that should be a great comfort to us as his people, that we have a high priest who is even now interceding for us as his people, and our salvation is secure, and our future hope is secure, not because of what we do, but because of his work and his work alone. Thus, we can rest sure, rest assured that he will be faithful to his work. Also, we can rest from our striving, and we can trust in his finished work. And it might be here where we kind of think, okay, we've talked about all the works of Jesus. And if that's what you think, you would be wrong. Because there is a great work of his second coming. I don't know if you thought about that, about part of the work of Jesus, but his second coming. Now, we aren't getting out any maps or graphs or timelines in our discussion. We won't be talking about Russia and blood moons. Uh, But rather, I want us to think through the hope that Jesus' second coming produces in us as Christians. So firstly... Jesus' return means that we will be with him, right? Jesus himself asserts this in John's gospel. He says in John chapter 14, verses two to three, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. See here, Jesus likens heaven to a large house. It's a big, big house with lots and lots of room. There's a big, big table, lots and lots of food, right? Yeah, I know, I know, you know the song. Uh, right? So he likens heaven to a large house, many rooms. He has returned to the Father's house to prepare a place for each believer. And the point here is that the Father loves us and we will be right at home in his heavenly presence. We will not feel out of place. We will belong in our Father's heavenly house forever. His return means we will be with him. Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, Paul teaches the same truth when he clears up the Thessalonians' confusion concerning Jesus' return. See, in in Thessalonica, they had this mistaken idea that their fellow believers who died might miss out on final salvation. But Paul says that they are not to grieve as the unsaved do when their loved ones die. They will not miss out on final salvation if they were in Christ. Rather, Jesus will raise them from the dead. He writes, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 Thus, as we talked about a few weeks ago when Moses went out to meet Jethro, remember that scene? His father-in-law, he went out and and met him and, and walked back to his tent 
with him. And we talked about how we will rise up and greet people at our door when they knock on our door or ring our doorbell and they're coming over to our house. We will get up off the couch and walk over to them and welcome them at the door and walk them into our house. Well, likewise, as Christians, living or dead, we will rise to meet Christ when he comes in the air and we will welcome him into his glorious return. And, and Jesus' return, secondly, also brings resurrection, not just for Christians, but for everyone. And in this, there is a final judgment and there is an eternal blessing or punishment. Now, the most famous passage in the Bible, and this is found in Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus is talking about the eternal destinies of human beings. He teaches powerfully that when he returns, all people will be separated into two categories, the sheep and the goats. And the sheep will be blessed with a rich inheritance in the final kingdom of God, but the goats will be cursed forever in the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And Jesus leaves the following words ringing in his hearer's ears. He says, Matthew 25, 46, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Thus, just as the resurrection life that we will have as Christians is eternal, stretching into eternity future, so the punishment upon those who have not repented of their sin and believed upon Jesus is also eternal. See, this is the same word used both times, which leads us to a sobering note, that the punishment that the goats will face will be an eternal one lasting for eternity future as they suffer under the righteous wrath, the judgment of God. Just as sure as we are that the eternal life of the Christian is for an eternity future, so we can be sure from God's word that the judgment that someone will face will be for an eternity future. You see, this is why as Christians we long to share the good news of the hope with those around us knowing that God will seek and save the lost as we share our lives and the gospel with them. And so this news of these, these future states, these eternal states that everyone on the planet is headed towards in eternity somewhere, we will, we will be in the uh, beneficent presence of God in eternity future, or we will be under the righteous judgment and wrath of God for eternity Future And this news fuels us in local missions and into international missions, right? To give our lives so that the nations could be glad on the day when Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom here upon the earth. On that day when, as Matthew 25, 31 says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. See, it is the returning king, Jesus, therefore, who will condemn the wicked to hell, in eternal hell, and bless the righteous with eternal life. And the righteous, of course, are those who have trusted in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And the Bible concludes on a similar note. Near the end of Revelation, a speaker says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. Revelation twenty-two twelve. And the speaker, of course, is Jesus, who will come again and reward his people and punish the wicked. Next, John utters a beatitude, Revelation twenty-two fourteen. 
Blessed are those who wash their robes, so they may have the right to the tree of life. See, notice that Scripture pronounces Christians, therefore, as blessed, filled with joy at the end, because they've been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb and as a result have the right to the tree of life. The tree representing the eternal life with God, right? That was found in the Garden of Eden and reappears here at the end of the biblical story. Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, bodily, unable to enter, so they would not eat from the tree and live forever in a sinful state. Yet at the end, all sin will be removed from God's people and we will have free access to the tree, which symbolizes abundant life, eternal life. So in wrapping up this episode, we're going to consider four things that Jesus' return will bring. Firstly, Jesus' return brings unspeakable and everlasting joy. Both Paul and John speak of the consummate joy of the redeemed. As we just saw in John, after recording Jesus' promise to return, it speaks of the bliss awaiting the saints. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they might have the right to the tree of life. And Paul's message is similar Right after extolling the grace of God that brings salvation, he directs our attention to the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. The apostle speaks of the returning Redeemer. Right, And how does he describe Christ's appearing? It is our blessed hope. The hope of the Lord and Savior's coming fills us with joy as we anticipate being with him forever. Secondly, Jesus' return brings deliverance. And this deliverance takes two forms. First, he will deliver his people from any persecution they are enduring. Paul makes this plain at the beginning of 2 Thessalonians. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. We see that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6-8. to And on that day, he will come to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at by all true believers, verse 10. And the next passage tells us why, right? So so it tells us that Christ will deliver his people from eternal punishment. At the the beginning of the first letter to the Christians in Thessalonica, the apostle proudly rehearses the testimony of the church in that city, right? People in the surrounding areas themselves report how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. See, because Jesus' death and resurrection save, when he comes from heaven, he will bring final deliverance from the wrath to come. And that will be a good day. Thirdly, Jesus' return brings the kingdom and our inheritance. In the same message about the sheep and the goats referred to above, Jesus promises more blessings to the saints at his return. Right before he condemns the goats who are on his left, he gives words to comfort the sheep on his right. He says in Matthew 25, 34, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. And here, Jesus combines familial and royal imagery. God is our Father, and all who trust in His Son for salvation become God's children and receive an inheritance. God is also King, as is His Son, and the inheritance of the sons and daughters of God is the kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world. And we learn from other scriptures that the final dimension of the kingdom of God, our inheritance, is nothing less than the new heaven and the new earth. And then fourthly, Jesus' return brings cosmic restoration. 
Now, Peter speaks of Jesus' sufferings to his hearers in Jerusalem and then invites them to repent. And what will be the results? Well, that the penitent hearers may know the forgiveness of sins and that in times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things. Acts chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. And Jesus' return will bring many blessings for his people, as we have seen. It will result in God's restoring all things, according to Old Testament prophetic prediction. And here again, the second coming issues forth in the new heavens and the new earth, as foretold by Isaiah in Isaiah 65, 17, and chapter 66, verses 22 to 23. And so, uh, as we as we celebrate and continue to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus as Christians, as we continue to think theologically about the resurrection of Jesus and everything that it entails, we must remember that apart from his resurrection, we have no assurance before God that our sins have been forgiven. And because of his resurrection, we are assured that we have been justified and adopted and forgiven. Right now, by grace and through faith, we have the righteousness of Jesus applied to our account so that we can hear on that final day, well done, good and faithful servant. But not because we have been good and faithful, not because we have done well, but because Jesus has done well in our place and we are covered in the finished work and the righteousness of Jesus. Not only that, but because of his resurrection, we can expect at his second coming to receive new bodies, one that will live in eternity future, glorifying God in our bodies and enjoying him forever will be our great joy and task. So thanks for tuning into this Basecamp uh, episode. Thanks uh, as well again to the wonderful folks at Capitol Hill Baptist Church for providing some of the outline and content for today's episode. I, I pray that this episode has helped you grow in confidence and thankfulness to God for his great love as demonstrated through the work of Jesus. And I pray until he returns that we might give our lives to making Jesus known, to sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus and being faithful to his word. I pray that we would be faithful stewards of the good news, the gospel of our salvation, so that others may enter into this joy of ours and may have the resurrection hope in this life and in the world to come.